Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Amy and I are on hiatus until the new narrative lectionary season picks up in September. In the meantime, we hope you'll enjoy this episode from our special summer series on economic justice, first recorded in the summer of 2022. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, Bible Worm begins our summer series on biblical views of economic justice, Deuteronomy 15, 1-11, and 24, 10-15. We begin with the radical command of Deuteronomy 15, 1 to forgive the debts of the entire community every seventh year, resetting the debt economy and ensuring that no one either falls into generational poverty or accrues generational wealth at the expense of others. We highlight the tension between a worldly economics of scarcity, which views others as competitors for limited resources, and Deuteronomy's theology of God's blessing, which insists that there is enough for everyone, if only we would learn to distribute it properly, looking out for the community's well-being before our own. And we talk about just economic practices that respect the dignity of the poor and insist that poverty should never confine a person to a life of shame or suffering. There's a lot to wrestle with here, so thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? I am doing great. We are officially in Bible Worm land anyway. At the beginning of our summertime, we have made it through our third cycle of the Narrative Lectionary and we're headed into our summer series. You actually, you surveyed our supporting community about what what they might want a summer series about. And, I did. And the people have spoken. The community did speak, and they spoke the following things. One is that they would like for us to do a series on biblical women. And so what we've decided to do with that is next season, we're going to do a, like once every four or five weeks, we're going to do a, a story about a biblical woman. And then next summer, 2023, there will be a series available on biblical women. So we're not going to do that this summer, but we are working on it. Thing number two was Leviticus, which fascinated me that the, the Bible room folks want to do a series on Leviticus. Yeah. We did not decide to do that, but we may do that next summer or some version of it anyway. We're not making any commitments, but I was, I was excited about, I mean, I don't I know, know that much about I know. Leviticus, little, but I was excited to talk to you about but Leviticus. But excited. I could talk about Leviticus forever. I know you could. Yeah, that's like your thing. <laughs> Heaven help us all. <laughs> yeah. That's why you didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> But in fact, the series that we're going to do this summer is a series, six-part series on economic justice, starting with three Hebrew Bible texts from Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Micah, and then three New Testament texts from Luke, Matthew, and John. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty jazzed about this series. Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like we got a little taste of this topic back in the wintertime. We did a special episode on a, a Torah portion in Exodus called Mishpatim, that, that talks a little bit about the, the imperative to give loans without interest. And we interviewed an organization that is like really trying to live into this called the Jewish 
free loans of Atlanta, I think. Jewish interest free loans of Atlanta. And that was just a great sort of entryway into what what a fruitful topic this is. And I feel like it comes up a lot in our conversations, sort of in the background. Like what kind of system is the biblical text envisioning and encouraging that we most certainly are not inhabiting? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And what would it look like to actually inhabit that? And what you said there at the end is exactly right, I think, is, you know, these texts, especially, I think, for, for Christian readers, the texts in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Micah, I, we, they just don't get a lot of airtime in our communities. And so when we talk about, like, the biblical vision of the community of God or the kingdom of heaven or however we want to talk about it, people just don't have, most of us don't have a very concrete idea of what that mm-hmm. even is like. And so it's part of the idea of this series, is that's exactly right, is to say, well, when the Bible talks about like how we live together in community or what the kingdom of heaven looks like, it actually gives us some fairly specific things. And we're trying to draw those out. You know, it's so funny as you were talking, I was thinking about these sort of issues of board governance that I've worked on during my career in synagogue life. And one of them is is the way that the people on the board who run finance, like the finance committee, sort of whether you want to or not, becomes this like superpower that ultimately controls so much of what happens because if you don't have money to support whatever your idea is, you really are starting, you know, with not just your arms tied behind your back. Like, I mean, it's, it's just so hard to move anything forward without thinking about how, how resources are going to be allocated or not to support that. So I feel like these texts are, are that way in the biblical text. Like if we don't, look at how resources are allocated in the world, a lot of this is just these sort of vague ideas that are hard to yeah. hard to give legs to. One of the things that has happened historically, not among all Christians, but among a lot of Christians, is that this sort of spiritual life of Christianity, like your religious life is sort of personal and internal and spiritual. And then there's this other world that is material and economic mm-hmm. and political and there's really been a sense in a, among a lot of Christians for a, for a long time that these two shouldn't ever meet, right? That you should keep your, your spiritual life spiritual and your economic, political, public life secular. And it seems to me, and is this, is this true that in, in your tradition, there is less of a division between those ideas? That being Jewish in some sense is, is about the way that you engage in the, in the world more directly? It definitely is. There's a lot of conversation about it, although there still is, I think, this sense of what someone actually decides to do with their money is private. So there still mm. is sort of a a little bit of a privacy gate, <laughs> which is such yeah. an apt example in some ways, around how people actually live into these things or don't, whereas some other meets vote, it's, it's much more acceptable to ask someone what their practice is or to yeah. speculate about what it might be. But there is a lot of conversation and encouragement around how we ought to be using the resources that have been placed in our care. Yeah, that's really helpful. It's probably also worth saying that in your tradition, you know, the first two of these texts in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, those are read every year as part of the Torah cycle. And so these Mm -hmm. texts are very much alive, not just once in a while, but read aloud in the place of worship. Yeah. Once a year. Yep. Yep, yep. Many a bar and bat mitzvah child has had these texts to explicate and try to understand and teach about for the for the congregation. Yeah. 
So today we're going to begin with two texts from Deuteronomy. We're going to start in Deuteronomy 15, 1 to 11, and then we're going to jump over to Deuteronomy 24, 10 to 15. Anything, I mean, there's a lot one could say, like anything you want to say by way of introducing Deuteronomy is kind of a ridiculous question <laughs> uh, because there's a lot that one could say, but just, I mean, what we're interested in is less Deuteronomy itself and more about the view of Deuteronomy 15 and 24 about economic relationships. But are there things we should say about Deuteronomy before we dive into the text? Okay, let's let's see if I can do a sort of Deuteronomy on one on one foot here. Yeah. So the the best we understand academically, or the best I understand academically, what what this text is, is there's sort of a so this is the last book of the Torah. At the end of this book, the Israelites will be about to enter into the land of Israel, the promised land. Yeah. They'll be up on the mountain, and Moses dies before being allowed. Moses is not allowed to enter the land. That's a whole other story. But so the book of Deuteronomy is really sort of his, uh, narratively, it's like his his final teachings. Like, it, yeah. these are the things you really need to remember when you go into the land. And as the book progresses, you get, it seems to me it becomes more and more urgent, you know, as, as Moses is realizing that he's not going to be there to keep harassing them about remembering these things. A lot of what's covered in Deuteronomy is also elsewhere in the text. It's almost like this is a greatest hits of of biblical teachings and biblical law, but, but written slightly differently, written probably by a different source. I don't know how much we want to go into like the, the like source history and whatnot. That, that might be enough to sort of satisfy us for now. What what do you want to add to that? I think that's probably exactly right. I, I really love that introduction. And, you know, where you were headed there at the end about th- a lot that's contained in Deuteronomy is also given in other forms elsewhere is exactly right. Within the narrative framework, so not thinking historically, but narratively, mm-hmm. what has happened is that the, the Torah, the law has been given once at Sinai back in Exodus, and that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And then the Israelites have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And the whole generation that received the law was there when the law was received has died. And so this is sort of a re-giving of the law, uh, a reinterpretation for a new generation and for a new era. We're not wandering in the wilderness anymore. Mm -hmm. We're getting ready to go and be settled in a land flowing with milk and honey. And what's that going to be like? And one of the things that I love about Deuteronomy is... You know, Moses talks about that as the covenant that God has made with all of us who are standing here today. You, you and I have talked about this before, but it, there is a sense in which even though you weren't there 40 years ago or 3,040 years ago mm-hmm. when the original Torah was given, God continues to sort of renew that in new, new communities, new generations, new circumstances. And, and Deuteronomy is kind of narratively the first instance of that sort of re, I don't know, reapplication is not exactly right, but recommitment or reinterpretation or, or something. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's like the first in the cycle of many renewals that will have to happen generation after generation after generation. All right, so one of the things that we'll want to be thinking about then is what is happening in this text. And then if we think about what does it mean to renew this covenant in our own mm. communities and our own times and places, what might that look like? Which is, a, I mean, a huge question and, and largely unanswerable, I think, for us. Yeah. But we can at <laughs> <Largely> least... <laughs> unanswerable. 
we can at least think about like what is new in our situation or, you know, what are the things that we need to dig through a little bit as we think about how to connect this text to our own, to our own world. But we'll get there in a little bit. All right, so we'll pick up then in Deuteronomy 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6, and I'm just going to keep reading the Common English Bible. Sometimes when we're in the Hebrew Scriptures, I read the NRSV, but I, I'm just going to keep on with the CEB. Stick with Are you reading JPS? Yeah, mm-hmm. Are you and JPS, yeah. The New Jewish Publication Society. Okay, picking up in 15.1. Every seventh year, you must cancel all debts. I feel like you could just stop right there. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean... And saying, like, how do we renew this? This is one of these texts that is so, like, there are texts in, in, in the Torah that I really wrestle with. And I'm like, I don't know. This is, like, this seems unjust. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't, you know, you can come up with all kinds of reasons not to do the things. But this is one of the texts that I'm like, oh, I can't use the word I'm thinking of because I think we promised Apple there would be no cursing with it. But, like, dang. Yeah. Okay, continue yeah. reading. I mean, the rest of this text is just a sorting out of that first sentence, right? Every seventh year, you must cancel all debts. But I just wanted to pause there because, like, that is a fairly clear instruction. Enormous. Got a debt? Enormous. Cancel it every seventh year. Somebody owe you money? Seventh year? Cancel. Every seventh year, you must cancel all debts. This is how the cancellation is to be handled. Creditors will forgive the loans of their fellow Israelites. They won't demand repayment from their neighbors or their relatives because the Lord's year of debt cancellation has been announced. You are allowed to demand payment from foreigners, but whatever is owed you from your fellow Israelites, you must forgive. Of course, there won't be any poor persons among you because the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, but only if you carefully obey the Lord your God's voice by carefully doing every bit of this commandment that I am giving you right now. Once the Lord your God has blessed you exactly as he said he would, you will end up lending to many different peoples, but won't need to borrow a thing. You will dominate many different peoples, but they won't dominate you. Hmm. Okay, so first I just want to get at the the sense of like what is being envisioned here internally. So we've got this, your fellow Israelite, your friend, your relative, your neighbor and your relative. And then we've mm-hmm. got this other part dealing with mm-hmm. people outside of that community. But let's just focus internally for a minute. And I mean, the instruction is forgive the loans of your fellow Israelite. Don't demand repayment. And this is to take place every seventh year. Can you, I mean, can you just sort of help us think about like, what might that look like? Why would somebody be in debt and what would it look like to to forgive somebody's debt? That's such a good question. And I think it's such a great way to start to, you know, try on <laughs> what this text is telling us to do. So I just want to highlight first that the sort of echo, you know, with every seventh year with the function that Shabbat plays in some ways in this community, that on the seventh day, you you are to basically step out of the economy and step yeah. out of the whole mindset of productivity in any form. You know, there's there is there's conversation about like, well, that's not, you know, it it is harmful to your own economic well-being to do so. And it is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Many, many Jews and many societies have suffered greatly for not being it, for choosing not to work, for choosing to follow this law on Shabbat. And yet it is like it's essential to the biblical view 
that our systems and our productivity are not are not the end in itself. Like that's not what we're working towards. We, you know, you work to live instead of live to work. So that was sort of like a prelude to your question, I think, that the idea that we have to step out of that yeah. periodically is is real. I think that reference to the Sabbath day is is really helpful. And, you know, like if you don't have a Sabbath day, then life just continues on in this like endless stream of the passage of time. And that what the Sabbath does to time is it breaks it into chunks and re- and resets it. It gives you the sense of there is a chance for things to reset, restart, get back, like renew. And so it, like thinking about that economically, you know, there's also laws in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere about every seventh year, you should let your land rest. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of the spiritual version of this. There's the agrarian version mm-hmm. of this, that the land is going to rest fallow every seventh year. And here's the economic version of this, that the, econ- the economy is going to reset every seventh year. I really appreciate that sort of thinking about all of these things and they're grounding in that creation story in which God rests on the seventh day. If, if even God can take a break from being produ- productive, as we talked about earlier this season, then surely surely you and I can, can reset as well. Yeah. This idea of debt cancellation, I mean, how do you think people would, in, if we're thinking about ancient Israel anyway, what in what ways would people take on debts and what would you be like? Why do you think that text wants people to have their debts forgiven on this sort of cyclical basis? You know, it's easier for me to answer the second question than the first in some ways. And I don't know exactly why that is. When you ask, how do people wind up in debt? Yeah. I've actually never really thought about that question for Israel in particular, because it almost just seems like this, this, it's like this assumption in my mind that in every society, somehow it winds up that resources do not wind up equally distributed, and some people wind up with a lot, and some people wind up with not enough, and the ones who have not enough are always sort of at the, you know, they they function at the mercy of <laughs> the people who yeah. happen to have resources. Do you have any, like, specific situations in mind that would— put an Israelite in debt? I mean, I'm I'm thinking of like someone is ill and so they can't harvest their field or... Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Do you have anything more specific in mind? Yeah, no, I mean, I, to me that, I love your answer to that question because I think we often, even in our own time, don't think about all the ways that people can fall into debt. And, you know, a lot of times the knee-jerk reaction, I think, especially among people of some means contemporarily is to say, well, you fall into debt because you make bad choices Mm -hmm. or because you don't work very hard or something like that. And I mean, I think that would probably was, is true sometimes today. And I think it probably was true in the ancient world as well. Like some people just didn't do their work. But what I think this text really has in mind is, I mean, life happens in all kinds of ways. And if you are imagining a subsistence farming culture, mm-hmm. by and large, then if you have one bad crop yeah. or, you know, your field gets infested by locusts and your neighbors doesn't, or mm-hmm. I've, I, your example of somebody becoming sick or somebody getting injured and now they can't glean their field, or, you know, if there's a family and the the male head of the household were to be injured or to die 
Yeah. Uh, then now you've got women and children who the sort of the labor practices are not as easy. And so I think there's all kinds of reasons that one could fall into debt. And then it's simply as I didn't get my crop this year, so I can't feed my family. So I need to borrow right. food from you even. And now we're in this cycle of, so now I owe you money and I owe you food and I can't do that. So now I've got to work for you. Right. You know, I, it doesn't take a lot. No, I think that's exactly right. It does spiral. not take a lot then or now. It does not take a lot. No. And I think I think what what this text is trying to do is to prevent, you know, in my experience <laughs> in the world, like money begets money and poverty begets poverty because yeah. of the way the system is built. Like even just it this is such a weird streak in me, but like the fact that investing in things is like a thing and people make yeah. money and in fact, entire livings doing that. <laughs> it makes me strangely angry. Like that, that's, that that's a thing you can do that your yeah. money can make more money for itself. And I think what this text is trying to do is to interrupt that cycle and not create a permanent underclass where like you're born into poverty, you inherit the debts of, you know, whoever came before you and you just can never dig yourself back out. Like it's acknowledging right. that debt is real and, and you may be in debt for a while, but there has to be some, there has to be some reset bar. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, so if you imagine like a hypothetical situation where, you know, I can't feed my family this year. And so you say, I'll feed your family this year. But mm -hmm. next year, you owe me 25% of the produce of your land right. or something like that. So now next year, I'm already starting out in the hole 25%. And so I'm just barely making it. You now have 25% surplus right. that you can, you know. And so you can see how that goes really quickly. It is interesting to me that this text doesn't say you should, you know, it's not that the idea here isn't simply that I, that you should have given me enough to get through the year. Like, it seems fine yes. for you to say, I'll tell you what, I'll get you through this year, but then you need to pay me back That's what right. I have given you. Right. So there's not a sense of like, you just need to give what is yours to, to everyone else right. with no expectation of return, but there's a period of time. And if, if I can't pay you back within the period of time allotted, then at some point in the seventh year, then you say, okay, you, you okay. gave it a good faith effort. Let it go. And now we're just gonna we're just gonna wipe it clean. Yeah. To me, that's an interesting nuance to this text. That it's, it's it, not it simply is. like it don't give It is not total utopia. This text yeah. sees us as humans. <laughs> yeah, it does. So one of the things that's interesting to me in this text is if we skip down for a second to verse four. Mm -hmm. Of course, there won't be any poor persons among you. Of course. So. If there's not going to be any poor people among us, then what is this command even here for? Well, I think we have to read verse four along with verse five. There, my translation mm -hmm. is, there shall be no needy among you. And then the verse, the beginning of five, if only you heed the Lord your God and keep this instruction. And as we'll go on to read later, like here, here it says, there shall be no needy among you. And then in verse seven, it says, if there's needy among you. And then by the yeah. time we get to the end of our reading, it's like, there are definitely going to be needy among you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so exactly So I think right. there really is like a wrestling in this text with like, 
this is how it should be. This is God's system. And immediately, as soon as it has come out of Moses' mouth, there's a recognition that this is not going to work quite this this way. Already, like even we already can't do this, like as modern people, like this seems too hard for us. But even in the text itself, it it seemed to recognize that this goes against some aspect of human nature. Yeah. Was that too strong a statement? Does it really go against human nature? I mean, I don't know how to think about human nature. (laughs) Yeah. Human sinfulness. You know, but my experience of the world as a modern person is that we are mostly, at least in my culture, oriented toward taking care of ourselves first and accumulating for ourselves first. And there's always some group of people that we're like, ah, you know, like whatever happens to them happens to them, which, which is actually in this text too, which we'll have to get to in a minute. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I think, I think that this notion that human societies inevitably wind up with some people who have a lot of stuff and other people don't seems to be true in the modern world anyway. And it also seems to be the case in this text. That's, that's kind of what is envisioned. I like what you did with verse four to say, like, it's not God saying magically God is going to make it so that there's not any poor people. It's saying God is going to bless the land, which mm-hmm. I think means that there's going to be plenty. Mm-hmm. And also, I love the way you said that you got to follow this commandment. Like the point of this commandment is if you follow it, there won't be any poor people. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which like it is not simply God doesn't simply create a world in which there isn't poor. God mm-hmm. creates a world in which there is enough. Mm-hmm. And then it's incumbent on us to make sure that all of those things are distributed in ways that assure that there's no people who are actually poor. Right, right. And I'm thinking now of all these, you know, teachings from local organizations to me that work with hun- with hunger that are reminding us over and over again, we don't have hungry people because there's not enough food. Yeah. There's plenty of food that yeah. we're throwing in the trash. Yeah. The problem is that we're not getting it like it's it's concentrated in certain places. It's not getting to the people who need it. There's, you know, a financial barrier to it. But the problem is not that we don't have the food. And right. and that's that seems like what this is saying. Like God will provide the food. Yeah. What are you gonna do with it? You're reminding me of stories I hear from some of my friends at Mercy Church that there are restaurants that actually will guard their dumpsters. So they'll, you know, they'll throw food away in the dumpster because it's been sitting too long for them to serve it, but it's still perfectly fine food. And so then homeless people will want to eat out the food that's out of the dumpster and people will guard their dumpsters to prevent them from eating food without paying for it. And so then you've got hungry people and food going to waste for no real reason. For no reason. And if you think about that, that also happens on these larger scales as well. Yeah. There are some organizations I know. The one I'm thinking of is, I think it's called DC Central Kitchen or something like that in Washington. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they go around to all these restaurants and they take their leftover food yes. and then they bring them back to their kitchen. We have one in them. Atlanta too called mm-hmm. Second Helpings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Organizations like that to me, like they are recognizing this idea. There is plenty, It just, but it, it's not going to magically get where it needs to go. You've got to do some work to get it there. I remember one of my strongest memories from that my son's bar mitzvah was that we ordered way too much food for the luncheon. And I spent the whole afternoon 
trying to get it to places where people could eat yeah. it. Because I was like, we can't take all this home and we can't throw out all this food. And it would, you know, so calling around to different shelters and seeing who would take some places couldn't, you know, whatever. And we did finally find a, a place that would take it, but it, ta- it takes work. Like someone has to do that work. It doesn't, it yeah. doesn't happen automatically. Like one of the things, like as I'm listening to you, you know, I'm thinking like, Amy, you're a good person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that is a nice thing to do, but that's not what this text is saying. This text is not saying like you should pat yourself on the back if you figure out a way to not throw away the extra food from your gathering. This text is saying you as a person of faith who live in a covenanted relationship with God and your neighbor should do this, not just on a special occasion, but all the mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. you should be figuring out how to make sure that people don't fall through the, through the cracks. Yeah. Now, Amy, I will tell you that I, I would love for this text to say, forgive the debts of everyone. Yes. <laughs> this text does not say that. This text yes. says you can demand it from foreigners. So you have to forgive your fellow Israelites debt, but not the debts of foreigners. Yeah. And then in this in verse six, you'll end up lending to different people, but you won't have to borrow. You will dominate other people. But they won't dominate you. <laughs> yeah. So this text ends up with kind of an insider outsider mentality. Yes. Too. Can you help me think about that? Yeah, those are the two verses in this section that I'm like, oh man, really? Like, <laughs> did we have to do that? I have a little bit of an easier time with the first one than the second one, I think. And in part, actually, because of something I learned from you from that conversation with you back when we were talking about Exodus and in, Jan- in that January episode, that that maybe there is something about being part of a a covenanted community when you're being asked to take on the well-being of someone in this kind of really serious and profound way uh-huh. that I don't know how well equipped we are to take on the well-being of universally to of everybody yeah. all the time. I wish that we were. Yeah. But I'm thinking about like, I don't know if this this teaching quite applies, but I don't remember the name of the rabbi. Some famous, famous rabbi from Poland. There, there's many of those. It must be one of them saying something about how I would, you know, when I was young, I wanted to change the world and I couldn't do that. So then I decided I was going to change my town and I couldn't do that. So then I decided I was going to change my family. And, and it just sort of gets to be this narrower and narrower thing until you realize like, if everyone focuses on... Like, what can you touch? Like, what can you, what can you have a direct impact on? And, and actually makes the circle a little smaller. Well, you certainly could read it as exclusionary. And I, I don't love it in here either. I think there is some wisdom to, if we broaden it too much, the job becomes too big and we start just stepping out entirely and saying like, well, I can't be responsible for everyone's well-being. And so I'm just going to, close my door and not look at what's happening. Yeah. I think it's a compromise position, basically. I don't think this is the ideal. Although I wonder if if everyone did this for their own community. I, d- I don't know. I don't know. And But th- like, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, but wealth is already so unevenly distributed to begin with that you can't say every community does for itself. You know, like maybe if we could rewind back to some time when everyone's starting on equal footing then then maybe this kind of thing would work. I don't know. There, there's my messy dump of thoughts on that verse. Yeah, no, I think that's a really helpful. I mean, 
I don't, you didn't give me any solutions, but you nuanced <laughs> the issues in, in really helpful ways. And I, I think that's exactly right. The other thing that I think is true in that last verse is it's recognizing uh, the, the notion of lending is tied up with the notion of domination. Yes. You can lend to them and you might end up me. dominating them. That's harder. I, this sort of like the goal to be, to not be dominated and maybe like enjoying domination of other people that, that I find troubling. I don't know, quite know what to do with it, but it is pointing to something that I think is true, which is that those who control the financial resources ultimately end up dominating and those who don't have access end up getting dominated. And so the, the biblical text is saying something true there. I don't quite know, you know, it's, it's saying try to dominate others instead of being dominated by them, which yeah. is not my favorite way of, of getting there, but <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I agree with you that there is like, a, there's, there's reality in here. And I just, I, I recognize the reality and I hate the association of lending money with domination. And I, yeah. I recognize the dynamic, even in like gift giving, like the power dynamic and all of it. And I feel like I spend a lot of my time and energy fighting against the idea that when you give to someone else because you have resources and they do not, if you're doing it so you can exert power, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. So I don't quite know how to square that. And I do think that teaching is in the biblical text. Like just as, yeah. as you were saying before, like this is a commandment to do this with this food. You don't get a pat on the back. You don't get to be, you know, good right. girl. Like you're doing what you're supposed to do. This is God's vision for the world. So I, really, I just, I don't like, I don't like verse six, but I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's supposed to be like a carrot to get people to do a hard thing because this is a hard thing. Yeah. You know, the other thing to keep in mind, I think, for us is that narratively, this is a group of people that is the first generation after a 400-year domination, enslavement in Egypt. So they have the experience of being dominated is very recent for them, dominated economically. There was a famine. They had to sell their land and their labor to the pharaoh in order to survive the famine. And then they, they got trapped for 400 years, and there was nothing they could do. And so now this is saying, that's not going to happen to you again. And so contextually, I think to say, you know, like this thing that you fear happening, if you treat one another this way, that's not going to happen to you again. There's something really important about that being said. Yeah. The flip side of, and you might get to do that to other people. (laughs) Like, you know, like I think that there are other places in the Torah and and in the Bible, Christian Bible, where we, we might nuance that a little bit, but, but you kind of understand about this particular generation. That's really helpful context, I think. I'm thinking of it as don't associate generosity with domination. And this is saying, look, you can associate domination with generosity, which is a genuine step forward from the experience they have had in the world thus far. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Room Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on the Bible and economic justice. Amy and I are grateful to you for being a part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. 
Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bibleworm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's special episode. Okay, so let's pick up then in verse 7. Now, if there are some poor persons among you, say one of your fellow Israelites in one of your cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor fellow Israelites. To the contrary, open your hand wide to them. You must generously lend from whatever they need. But watch yourself. Make sure no wicked thought crosses your mind, such as, the seventh year is coming, the year of debt cancellation, so that you resent your poor fellow Israelites and don't give them anything. If you do that, they will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. No, give generously to needy persons. Don't resent giving to them, because it is this very thing that will lead to the Lord your God's blessing you in all you do and work at. Poor persons will never disappear from the earth. That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelites, to the needy among you, and to the poor who live with you in your land. Okay, so where I want to start, I think, is this thing that's happening in verse 9. Well, we've just gotten the sort of command to forgive debts every seventh year. Yeah. And then Deuteronomy says, don't do the cal- don't do the math when somebody comes and don't asks you. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. And then become hard-hearted and resentful. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? I, one of the things I love about the biblical text is it understands what people are like. And yes. people then, like sometimes we think about, oh, biblical times, it was like a whole other, like people were just completely different. I mean, and in some ways they were, but what well, you were talking about human in nature some ways before, not. where yeah. you do the math and then you're resentful. That's yeah. still true. And it, yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing that it's in here for that reason. And also because this is not an abstract idea. Like they're actually thinking about how is this going to play out, you know? Yeah. And what they're envisioning is that if someone comes to you and needs a loan, at year six and a half in the cycle, you know you're not going to get it paid back. And right. so you can just not give the loan. Like right. no one, while, while we are told you have, you know, it is the right thing to give the money, it's not like the the powers that be are going to take it from you and force you to give it. It's You have the free will, I guess, to give it or not give it. And they foresee that people are not going to give it. Yeah. And, you know, in uh, around the time of the, the end days of the Second Temple, this uh, was really an issue. Like, people were, were not, wouldn't give loans at the end of this period of time. And there was a crisis, really, in the Jewish community and a recognition that, that they had to do something. And so Rabbi Hillel, who you may have heard, he's a very sure. famous rabbi, comes up in a lot of stories, wound up issuing this very controversial ruling that debts could be transferred. I mean, it's like a legal loophole. Could be transferred to the state in a way that it would allow them still to be collected. It was a way of getting around this whole idea that debts have to be remitted in the seventh year because technically now the state has adopted it and so you can still be repaid. And it was controversial for obvious reasons. Like they're getting themselves around the intent of the biblical text but they felt that the biblical text was causing harm because people who were desperately poor in the seventh year, nobody would lend to yeah, because human beings are the way they are. And so this was their, their best attempt to figure out how to 
how to ameliorate that situation. And it's, it's still controversial. Like, I'd, I don't know yeah. what I think about it, but, but I also know what it's like to sort of live with this law on the books and then see how it's hurting segments of society in really urgent ways and say, like, we have to do something about this. But yeah, there goes the utopian ideal. Yeah. You know, while you're talking, I'm thinking about, this is not normally the what I think about, is I'm feeling <laughs> empathy for the person who's not in need, the person who has, is a subsistence farmer as well. They've made it through the seven years. Maybe they haven't made a lot of money. Maybe they're just getting by, but they've gotten through. They're doing okay. They're feeding their family. And now somebody comes to me and says, hey, I need to borrow from you Mm -hmm. money that you're never going to get back. You're not going to get it back because it's six months until the sabbatical year. And no matter how hard you were to try. And I I do think this text assumes that people who borrow money are going to make every possible effort to give it back. But they're just not going to be able to do it in six months. So I know I'm going to lose. Like, I get that. Like, now I'm thinking, like, why should this other person's misfortune create? Now, if I give them what they need, then now maybe my family's at risk. So why should their misfortune cause my, me to be even more tentative in my prosperity than I already am? I get that. It is hard. Like this text really requires us to throw our feet completely in, not only with the people in our household and the people in our extended families, but, you know, all your kinsmen, all the people of Israel. Anyone can come and ask you to borrow when they need and you're supposed to give to them. And I, yeah, like you're saying, I can I can understand if someone, if someone has a ton of wealth and whatever, then we don't have so much empathy for them. But if someone has just gotten above the point where every day they're afraid they won't have enough and has built up just like a little, you know, holding of grain, now to have to give it up and know it's, it's hard. It's hard. You would have to have a lot of faith, truly, that the abundance of God is somehow going to continue for you or that other people are going to do the same for you or... You have to have a lot of faith in the system. I think that's, I love the way you went there at the very end, because, you know, if I now am in jeopardy because I gave money to someone, the way out of that is for me to go and ask someone else and trust that they are going to lend to me like I lended to my neighbor. And so the whole community has to trust each other that we're going to help each other out when the time comes. Yeah. The other piece that you said there in verse... 10, it is this very thing that will lead to the Lord, your God blessing you and all you do and work at. So, I mean, this is really trying to reframe from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. When you think there is scarcity, you've got to protect your, what you've got. And what this is saying is, in fact, if you lend, then there will be more. Which is so hard to get, if you give it away, there will be more of it. Yes. It's so hard to get your head around that and to trust that. Like now faith in God becomes something more than like, you know, faith in God is kind of abstract for me oftentimes. But this is like really trusting God to say like, if you give your money away, there will be more money that comes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's making me think of other biblical texts we read. I think some we read fairly recently in the New Testament, but the idea that by caring for someone else, someone outside of you, 
somehow that creates some kind of magic, basically. Like that brings God into the system, like in the space between humans and and more abundance grows out of that. And that is a beautiful theoretical idea. And this is really like put your money where your mouth is, you know, like literally, literally give it away. And and when it gets that concrete, it's, (laughs) you know, there's not a lot of people who will do it. So, Amy, in, back in verse 4, we just, you had mentioned this a minute ago, but back in verse 4, we had just said, of course, there won't be any poor people among you. And now in verse 11, we said, poor people will never disappear from the earth. That just seems, I mean, I just don't, like, it seems on the face of it like a contradiction. But I, I don't, I don't want to, re- I want to read it as something more interesting than a contradiction. There's poor people, there's not poor people. Can you help me think about how those two verses fit together? I mean, the only thing I can think that makes some sense of it is that there will not be poor people if you follow this law. And from the very moment this law is articulated, it is recognized that it's a little bit beyond what humans are going to be able to do. Yeah. So it does kind of put forth this like utopian possibility there really is enough. There does not need to be poverty among you. God didn't create a system where there's poverty, but God didn't create that system. We're creating that mm-hmm. system. But it, that's a little bit of like a fatalistic view in some way that here's the bar, you'll never reach it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that's right. And I mean, the way that I would frame it a little bit is that Ensuring that there are no poor people requires constant vigilance, Mm -hmm. which is something a little more like there are always going to be people who are right at the very edge. At the edge. And if you do not tend to them, Mm -hmm. we're right back where we started. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not sure that's exactly what it says, but that that helps me make sense of it a little bit is to say we can get self-congratulatory, right? We live in a land of peace and prosperity. And then we think like, oh, well, we're a prosperous people. And then we start, we stop just noticing or paying attention to people who are actually not prospering, or we think they're not really part of us, or we think like, well, they're not the real America or whatever. Right. Like, right. They're lazy. They did something to deserve us. They're not like me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to say that the making sure we don't continue to have poor people is something that requires you to do something every single day. Yeah. You can never be self-congratulatory. To me, that's the way that I make sense of verse 11 with regard to verse 4. I like that. The other thing that I love in this section is just this image of don't be hard-hearted, don't be tight-fisted, have an open hand, lend generously. I don't know what to say about that other than I think those are really powerful images and that it is possible to give it is possible to give resentfully or to be tight-fisted in your giving. Like, I will just give you barely enough. Yes. Yes. And this is not that. There is um, another famous Jewish thinker named Maimonides who has what we refer to as the ladder of tzedakah, like the the ladder of giving and sort of what's the the best kind of giving and the worst kind of giving. (laughs) And the, the, the worst kind of giving is giving resentfully. Yeah. Like, fine, I'll, I'll give this to you, but I blame you for the situation you're in, and I don't want to give you money. And the top yeah. rung, the best kind, is the kind of giving that enables someone to 
become self-sufficient, that that breaks the cycle of neediness for that that. person. And some people read this verse, you know, give sufficient for whatever he needs in that way. Like, it's not just he needs Mm -hmm. $10, give him $10. But, like, what does he really need? Like, is it just $10 or is it a laptop, you know? Like, or is it your used car that's just sitting in your garage anyway, or is it whatever? Like, what's going to break this cycle, not today, but in the long term for this person? I love that, Amy. And, you know, that is, in my mind, exactly what this Deuteronomy 15 passage is ultimately about, is breaking the cycle of generational poverty. Mm -hmm. And it is recognizing that that's exactly what happens, is once people kind of start to slip, it builds and builds and builds. And so if every seven years, the question is, what does this person really need to break the cycle of poverty and sort of reset, then like, that's an amazing image that this biblical text has in mind. It also means that there's never going to, so the cycle of generational poverty is broken, but I think it also implies that the cycle of wealth accumulation is also going to be broken. Mm -hmm. So there aren't people who simply can ride on what happened Mm -hmm. in the previous generation. We're kind of yeah. all, we're always all making it together. Yes. And that's yep. the way. And There's that's no the way, way to opt work. out of this system. Yeah. Bobby, have you heard the story of the <laughs> babies down the river? Is this a story you tell in Christian communities too? I think I know what it is. Okay. So I'll, I'll tell it quickly. I try not to take too much of our time. Oh, but, but you know why I know this story is because I did an interfaith trip to Washington a couple of years ago with some students from Hendricks and we went to the... Reformed Action Committee, the Jewish... The yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we went to the Jewish group and they told us this story. So t- I only know it. I don't know it for the Christian reasons. I know yes. it for a Jewish reason. And I don't think it's a Jewish story, but we tell it a lot in Jewish communities. So the story is there's like a little village with a river that runs through it. And one day someone notices a baby floating down the river. And so they pull the baby out of the river. And shortly after that, there's another baby and another and another and another until like all the members of the town are spending all their time pulling the babies out of the river. Like it's like full crisis mode all the time. And finally, someone says, we need to go up the river and see where these babies are coming from and, and stop the babies from coming down the river or we're going to be doing this forever. And the people who are pulling the babies out say like, we can't send anybody up. We need everyone down here pulling the babies out of the river or, or we're going to miss some of them. And so they... So what we have our kids do in the school is debate, like, which, who are you in this? What do you think they need Mm -hmm. to do? What's the more important thing? The answer, of course, is that Jewish tradition requires us to do both. We have to do Mm -hmm. the immediate care. And that's what I see in a lot of the the second part of this. Like, you you have to actually give the loan. Like, (laughs) you can't close your fist and, you know, like, you have to give to the person who asks, the person who needs And the other part that every seven years we wipe this out is trying to deal with the systemic shutting off the faucet of babies, as the the kids say. It's pretty, I mean, it's a pretty neat text for its time in trying to address the immediate urgent need and also the system that we're creating that allows there to be need. That was a really helpful way of thinking about that, Amy. And so what, well, sort of what happened in this text then, if it were actually lived out, is something like, you know, you start out 
in the first year and everybody's kind of on an even playing field. And over the seven years, now you've got poor people who are in need of things on an immediate level. By year seven, we've gotten a little bit out of alignment. Out of, yeah, it's some people out. are in debt. Mm-hmm. Some people have money. Now we go up the river. <laughs> we reset everything. And so it's not that everybody's kind of on equal footing all the time. It's that the equal footing gets reset every seventh year to yeah. keep it from becoming an inevitable and, and chronic problem. Yeah. I love that. So the other passage that we are going to read today is down in Deuteronomy 24. It's related to what we're reading here in chapter 15. So I'm in verses 10 through 15. When you make any type of loan to your neighbor, don't enter their house to receive the collateral. You must wait outside. The person to whom you are lending will bring the collateral out there. Moreover, if the person is poor, you are not allowed to sleep in their pawned coat. Instead, be certain to give the pawned coat back by sunset so they can sleep in their own coat. They will bless you and you will be considered righteous before the Lord your God. I think I'm just going to stop there, actually, because that's sort of a self-contained little mm-hmm. vignette. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is sort of an interesting command. You can, it's okay to take a loan or to make a loan, but you had to wait outside and you can't sleep in their coat. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about why? Like Those seem like weird rules. I mean, I think... I I see both of these rules as 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 really pressing us to recognize the innate dignity of people who are on the margin. Mm. Yeah. So so on the one hand, if someone so it's it's envisioning a situation where someone has agreed that if they don't pay back something, you get this item of theirs. It's not that you're stealing it from them. You're not stealing it. They right. have agreed to this. Like it should on the face of it, by American legal standards, this is totally fair to take that right. thing. And this text is saying, you can't humiliate that person. Like, you can't cause a confrontation. You can't break in, like, you can't bust into their house. You need to wait outside for them to come and give it to you, which gives them, it. like, I mean, the text doesn't go all the way and say, like, you can't take the thing, but you have to let the person have some some modicum of of autonomy here or dignity or like active participation in this. You can't just you, you can't you can't humiliate them. Yeah. I really I think that's exactly right, Amy. And you know, like a code was would have been really important in a subsistence yeah. farming culture, right? And if you had to sleep at night without a coat, like you would be cold quite frequently. And uncomfortable. Yes. And so this is about, you know, yeah, it's about human dignity. It's also about people just because they're poor or because they were in need don't need to be humiliated, but nor do they need to be uncomfortable or like, you know, like there's a certain level of human existence that you should be able to live even even if you have had to take a loan. And I mean, there's a certain point at which when I read this with bar and bat mitzvah students, you know, at that age, 11, 12 years old, there's a very strong sense of fairness, like fairness Mm -hmm. above all else. And if this person agreed to something and you are just making them do what they agreed to, that should be fine. Mm -hmm. And so this text, I think, really presses us to say like, okay, but people agree to a lot of things when they're desperate. When they truly mm. don't have any other choice, 
And there are other values that need to enter into this besides fairness. Like the fairness doesn't Mm. go away here. You can still have the thing, but there's also like compassion and, you know, seeing godliness in other people. And this person, you don't need their dumb jacket. Like (laughs) you don't. Like you can, if they have nothing to sleep in, in the desert, it's cold. Like you, you need to give it to them when they actually need it. You know, yeah. and and that just is how it is. And it has nothing to do with what they agreed to. And it actually has nothing to do with fairness in, in that interpersonal relationship. But it's really interesting to think about why and when the biblical text gets itself in between, you know, business agreements between two parties, basically. It's like yeah. you, you, you can't agree to certain things. I think that's so helpful. And just, you know, the recognition there that the way we do business with each other is very much a part of our communal life together. Yeah. And especially in a culture like this one, where you would have lived actually quite close together and you would have known everyone, you know, we're oftentimes separated from the people that we're doing business with. We don't, we might not actually know them in any other context. So thinking about it this way, I think is really helpful. If you think about those people are my neighbors, even if they don't live in my neighborhood, and so, yeah, the way I do business with them is very much a part of the, f- the fabric of the community. Yeah. This thing about going back every day and taking their coat back, mm-hmm. <laughs> like partly I think that nobody would do that because it's super annoying, but partly, you know, if, and especially if you're not allowed to go in their house. Now I've got to stand outside somebody's house every morning and take their coat back from them and then bring it back at night and give it back. And like everybody in the neighborhood is watching me do that every day. And I feel a little bit like there's probably some communal, like the fact that what you're doing is so public and everybody can see, I think changes the tenor a little bit because you, you're going to look petty if you it show lo- up every it sounds morning really and every petty. night. It sounds really petty. Like, if I can do that in private, then yeah. who cares if I'm petty? But if I have to yeah. do it in public, you know, I, so I like that idea of the, of the transparency of the, of the transaction. Yeah. Okay, so the last part of this text then picks up in verse 14. Don't take advantage of poor or needy workers, whether they are fellow Israelites or immigrants who live in your land or your cities. Pay them their salary the same day before the sun sets because they are poor and their very life depends on that pay. And so they don't cry out against you to the Lord. That would make you guilty. So this is about prompt payment of wages. Yeah. Which is not something, I mean, when you think about, at least when I think about biblical morality, paying wages promptly doesn't pop to my mind as the first thing that that would mean. But this is very clear instruction here. Yeah. Why do you think this matters? I guess what I envision is that they're, you know, picturing this world where the, the employer probably has more means than the employed, more, more cushion, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's easy to forget sometimes when you have that cushion. Like if if someone's living really paycheck to paycheck and you say, I'm only going to pay you once a month because that means I can pay less in my bills to the payroll company or like whatever, it has a really um, like direct and immediate effect on their life. Like I think it's, I see it related in some way to the idea that you have to return someone's clothing to them to be able to sleep in. Like they need that in a way that you don't actually need it. And right. 
even though your relative power in this system is greater because you have more resources, you have to, you, you have to remember, you have to remember that other people don't have that kind of wiggle room economically in resources that, that you might have. And it's easy to forget that. I think that's really well said, Amy. And, you know, I'm wondering in verse 14, the, at least in the CEB, don't take advantage of poor or needy workers. Mm-hmm. And then you get this thing about paying them promptly. Do you think that don't take advantage of is the same thing as pay them promptly? Or is, it a, is there more mm-hmm. to don't take advantage of? How do you read that? That's a great question. I mean, I think, I guess I would think don't take advantage of as as being broader and maybe the specifics of paying wages on that day being an example of how you wouldn't take advantage of them. But I don't have specific things in my mind as to what what the broader teaching would be. But I think it's got to be, I think it's got to be more than that. One of the things that you hear sometimes is like if if a worker complains to their boss about something, the boss sometimes will say, you're just lucky you've got a job. Yeah. And in my mind, don't take advantage of is anything where you could say, you're just lucky you have a job Yeah. to a complaint. So like, you, I'll pay you when I pay you, right? Like you don't need to like, I don't need to pay you every right. day. Why did you agree to this else. job if you didn't want these terms? Like it's that kind yeah. of argument that I feel like we hear thrown around a lot kind in of American lot. society. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So to me, then it would include things like paying people a fair wage and on your sort of, you know, people need the money to get by. And so you need to pay them every day and you need to pay them every day, at least enough for the day. Seems like totally reasonable bar, right. sort of minimum bar for not taking advantage of people. So I think this probably, in my mind, this would include not just prompt payment, but also fair wages and paying people what they're worth and not threatening people to say, I can just replace you if you don't do what I want. Like, don't take advantage of your position as the employer to force people to do things that are not to their benefit. Yeah, I'm thinking now of all these stories that that we've heard in the news over the years about migrant workers in particular and the kinds of things that are expected of them and conditions under which they work and that like extreme vulnerability that they have economically and sometimes in terms of their legal status. And it is, and, and the whole system is just ripe with abuses of those vulnerabilities. Interestingly, and on a point we made earlier here, the immigrants are specifically named. So fellow Israelites or immigrants, like it doesn't matter in this case, as opposed to the loaning in Deuteronomy 15. It yeah. doesn't matter whether they're part of your community or somebody who is a foreigner. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, Amy. So this text is sort of setting the stage for the next five weeks of conversation about economic justice in the Bible. It's put a lot of issues on the table for me and I think for probably for many Christian listeners. It has sort of started to mingle in uncomfortable ways, religious faith and economic practice. and. I'm just curious as you're thinking about this, especially I think as somebody who thinks a lot more about how this text actually applies to contemporary communities than, than I probably do. What do you take away? What's your takeaway for, for us for today from Deuteronomy 15 and 24? This text to me is, I feel like I can't, I, 
I, I can't live up to it. And I kind of like that. Mm. It's, it's, it is, I, there's just such a, there's such a like, like gaping chasm between the ideals of it that I am a hundred percent bought into and the real call to radical faith that everyone else is going to participate in this system too, in a way that it will all work out. And I feel like I can have that faith with money that I consider, you know, once, once I'm above a certain level of economic anxiety, you know, there's a little bit of money out there that I feel like I can really give freely. But that example you gave earlier, I keep thinking of, you know, someone who's really just, just past that the edge of vulnerability themselves, who is asked to give more. It, it's, I feel like this is, this is like a terrible, a terrible summary of this whole section, but, I, but I, I, I love it because I, I don't know, I don't know how to truly live it. And so I feel like I can sit with it over and over again and think about whether there's some extra little piece of it that I can that I can add into my life. I don't I don't know. I feel like I should feel like ashamed reading this text because I because I don't live it as fully as I could, but I feel energized by it every time I read it. That's such a lovely way of saying that, Amy. Because this text is such a seemingly impossible thing to live out. But to me, it's the impossibility of it that I think exposes something really important about the way that I exist in the world, which is I am bought into a narrative that is given to me from elsewhere that there is not enough and that I got to take care of myself. And I am fully on board with that narrative. And so then this narrative about actually there is plenty and God's going to make sure there is plenty if only you treat one another well, like it really raises the question for me about whether I actually believe that that is true, right? Like there is such an incongruity between the world that I inhabit and the world that is on offer in the biblical text. And in ways that make me entirely uncomfortable, it's puts me squarely in the middle of those. And it says, do you actually have faith in God? Yeah. And I think for me and for a lot of us, like, yeah, of course I have faith in God. Like it's kind of a trite response, but this is not trite. And this is not abstract faith. This is, do you trust God enough to live your life this way instead of that way? And that really puts a fine point on it for me. I agree with you that I I actually find that inspiring even as I find it frightening. And I think it's because I have resigned myself to the fact that the world that I inhabit on a daily basis where there is not enough and I got to take care of me and mine seems so pointless and depressing. Yeah. Yeah. And this world seems so hopeful and possible. And just the possibility that we actually could live this way, even if I don't know how that looks like, like, that's something I want to try to do. That's something I want to, that's something I want to work for. That's something I want to fight for. And this text just kind of seems like, oh, this is the way it is. Like, this is what God's economy is like. Like, just go do that. And so I think even as I fail it miserably uh, to think that like the, the vision is that a life in God's community in the covenant community where we really actually did think of each other as neighbors and look out for each other 
Like it's possible. It could be done. It was commanded by God to Moses. Like, right. and that's sort of the expectation. I like, I want to do it. I want to try it. And so, you know, I, I was, I was, as you were talking, Bobby, you had me thinking about like organizations that are really trying to do this in some way, you know, yeah. like RIP medical debt that, that bundles people's medical debts so that it, it takes advantage of our ridiculous and stupid system of investing money in our yeah. country and, and enables it to pay off debts that would be absolutely crippling for a person to have. Or like mm-hmm. this, you know, the modern conversations about forgiving college loan debts and mm-hmm. is, the, is there some way, there, there is policy issue, but is there some way for us to band together and start paying off the college debts of people who for whom that is really, it's going to change their life, whether they have that debt or not. I'm also thinking about the modern system of cash bail, where people get thrown in basically mm-hmm. into debtor's prison. They get in prison, yep. they can't pay the bail to get out. And so they just stay there. Yep. And there are organizations that raise money and pay off yep. people's bail so they can literally return to living freely in the world. To me, this goes back to that conversation we were having early on where this text recognizes some limitations, like love your neighbor and like everybody else can kind of fend for themselves a little bit. Like as much as I disliked that idea, to me, that sort of says, okay, this thing that we're thinking about now, like debt forgiveness is a real thing. I can't figure out how to forgive everyone's debt, but there are some very straightforward things that are real needs that I could figure out how to do. Mm-hmm. that would benefit people who are my neighbors. So maybe we're not going to suddenly live in the kingdom of heaven as envisioned in the book of Deuteronomy, but maybe some people who are imprisoned in generational debt, yeah. maybe we could figure out a way to help them not be. Yeah. Yes. Take the next step. Just like money begets money, meets vote beget meets vote. That's right. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's the message in this text, too, is when you start living this way, then God will bless you. And, you know, I think some of that is sort of divine blessing, but I think some of that is the blessings beget blessings within the community. I think you're exactly right. If you start living this way, then other people can start living this way. And the community will, the character of the community can change. Well, Amy, I haven't enjoyed and appreciated this conversation. I'm looking forward to the next five weeks. <laughs> I don't know if my heart and mind can handle it, but I'm, but I'm looking I know. I'm to like, it. okay, I need to go write a check to RIP medical debt right after this, right exactly. after we get off this call. <laughs> yeah. Next week, we're going to be in the book of Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 to 18 and 33 to 37. Looking forward. All right. I'll see you then. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll continue our series on biblical views of economic justice, Leviticus 19, 9-18, 33-37. Until then, keep on digging.